The sermon text this morning is Psalm 37, 1 through 11. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. You know, in the past, envy was known as the green-eyed monster. And in the present, uh, it's probably known more as the lost sin. Lost to us in terms of its meaning and corrosiveness in our lives. And yet, you know, you look at a scan, a quick of literature, and from Shakespeare to Hemingway, envy, and, and on both sides of them, envy is often the subject of much discussion and debate. This idea of, of envy is David's point in Psalm 37. You know, Psalm 37 is known as a wisdom psalm. In other words, it, a wisdom psalm is intended to offer two ways to live. Uh, One way, of course, will lead to disappointment and ultimately death. That's the way that David will call us to avoid, avoid this road of envy. And the other way of life is the way of life that leads to joy. And that would be a a way of delighting and committing yourself to trust in the Lord. And that's what David is doing here is he's saying, be not envious. Now he says, be not envious of the evildoers. and, And that's true, but it's broader than that. The idea is not simply the evildoers, but be not envy. Envy is the issue. Envy is the sin. Envy is the danger that kind of grips us. Now, uh, let me just try to bring this to you in three buckets, three points. We want to discuss what is envy. What is the nature of it? In other words, it's a difficult thing to define. It's confused often with jealousy and covetousness. And then we're going to look at what envy looks like in your life. How does it manifest itself? How is it evidenced? So that you can be better able to discern it in your own soul. And then last, how do we kill this monster? I mean, how do we put this thing and us out of its misery that it brings into our life? So first, what is its nature? And then we're going to look at um, how does it manifest itself and then, and then how to kill it. So first, what is envy? Sometimes it's easier to explain things by what it's not. Envy, I would say, is not simply desiring to be like another person, for example. You you may see someone in the church or in your life that you respect, you appreciate. They have a life that's well-ordered, and you want to be like them. You want to have their characteristics. That's not necessarily envy. That could just be admiration or emulation. It's just desiring. You see the way their life is tracking out, and you appreciate it. Uh, Envy also wouldn't simply be the desire for a nice thing or nicer thing. So if you're driving down the road and you drive in a jalopy and it has more lights on its dashboard, like kind of Christmas time, it's got so many issues and 
someone drives by in a nice, new, reliable car, that's not a bad thing to think. Well, I, I wouldn't mind having that. I don't think that's what envy is. I, I, envy can often be confused with jealousy and covetousness. So let me try to, let me try to help understand the difference. Uh, jealousy tends to be more about what I desire to keep for myself. It's something in my possession, like, like a girlfriend or a car or a position. I want to keep it for myself, and so I'm jealous to protect it. Whereas envy tends to be desiring that which I don't have. It's something I want to get. So it's outside of myself. It's not a possession. We tend to envy things or people that are not ours. But when you look at envy and covetousness, uh, they both desire something that they don't have. Covetousness desires something it doesn't have. Here's the difference with covetousness and envy. Whereas covetousness desires something they don't have, envy desires something it doesn't have, and it's angry toward the one who does have it. So it's, it's much darker. It, it has a personal element to it, that I'm discontent, and I'm dissatisfied in my current position, and I'm angry at the one who has it. In other words, it, it's kind of being sad over someone's good fortune. A number of different scholars and authors have defined it this way, Thomas Aquinas says it's the sorrow of another's good. Dorothy Sayers, the British uh, novelist and writer, said it's the sin which, which hates to see other men happy. You know, th th there's a certain sense of my sadness is over their gain. Now, envy can also be reversed, right? It can be inverted. It can be my happiness over their ruin. Frederick Buechner, a contemporary writer says, it's the consuming desire to have everyone as unsuccessful as you. In other words, you are not satisfied with where you are, and you want to either bring them down or, or bring yourself over them. And, and there's anger, there's discontentment, there's dissatisfaction. It's not just wanting more, but I have an anger toward the one who has it. Now, we see these experiences of envy in the Bible, right? In Genesis chapter 4, the first murder. You know, Abel offered a sacrifice to God, which was accepted, and, and Cain's was not. And Cain grew envious of Abel before the Lord, which led him to hatred and then ultimately the first murder. Or you see it in Jacob. The story of Jacob was married to both Leah and Rachel, two sisters. Leah, she was unlovely and unwanted, and Rachel was lovely and wanted. And so there's a deep envy of Leah to Rachel over the affection of the husband. And yet Leah was fertile and had children, and, and Rachel was barren. She had no children, and there was envy back. I mean, can you imagine the dysfunction and the shame of that home, the difficulty that they would have had? But take it a step further, their son Joseph. Joseph was the favorite, and, and if you've been raised with favorites, you know the sting of this. He was the favorite over the other 11, and that brought about their envy and then eventual taking him, kidnapping, and selling him into slavery. Or King David and King Saul. David is being brought up. He's an up-and-comer, and, -and he's, he is um, envied by Saul over the accolades that he was receiving. But, but you can even slide into the New Testament. Herod, in Matthew 27, speaks about the fact that it was by envy that caused the religious leaders to bring Jesus to persecution. So we see this litany of disaster and destruction when we envy another. Of course, you see it so clearly in Snow White, right? With the wicked queen, miracle 
mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? Everything was great when the mirror was given her a couple bones and some attaboys, but then Snow White appeared, and then it was a bit different. And here's what the mirror said when asked. Over the seven jeweled hills, beyond the seventh fall, in the cottage of the seven dwarves, dwells Snow White, fairest one of all. Well, that's when the wicked queen went into a bit of a tailspin. And it wasn't that she was less attractive. The queen hadn't lost her beauty. But this one was a little more beautiful. And this is the nature of envy. Envy exposes to us what we love, what we desire, what we find meaning in. Envy lays bare before us the idea that God is not enough. Envy is, is a wicked thing. And it resides in each person's heart. You know that. We, we all are envious. And I want for just a minute when you look at the nature of envy, to also look at the face of Jesus for a minute. Because when you think about envy, you know, the heart of envy strives and strives and grabs for more. And yet Jesus comes to give everything he has and is. You know, envy looks uh, sorrowful over the rejoicing of another. And yet Jesus suffers for our rejoicing. Envy is never satisfied, and yet Jesus is the only satisfaction for us. So if you're a Christian here, I mean, think about all the things that you've desired, and and just cast your eyes upon Christ, who has given all, who satisfies, who has laid down his life. Paul speaks to this in beautiful terms in Philippians chapter 2, when he says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he humbles himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ is a glorious Savior. Even if you're not a Christian here, uh, what I find many non-Christians actually reject a caricature of Christianity. They don't reject Jesus. They reject a caricature. I would just ask you as we go through the sermon just to consider the nature of Jesus laying down his life. He is the opposite of envy. He is loving, gracious, giving, humble. So that's the nature of envy. It exposes our souls. It shows our devotions. It shows us our idolatries. It shows us what we're looking after to find meaning and significance to life. That's the, that's the essence or the nature of envy. But what's it look like in your life? How is it manifested? How should you see it kind of spring up in your life? Well, there's a number of ways. Uh, number one would be the envy by comparison. You know, we compare ourselves all the time to siblings, to spouses, to friends, to co-workers. But envy, envy generally comes up in terms of comparison when somebody begins to succeed or they get happy. I mean, for example, your friend uh, gets a raise and decides to move to a house. It's got one extra bedroom and a two-car garage. Well, now all of a sudden your house is just a little bit smaller. It feels much more cramped now than it did the day before you heard the news. That, 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 that kind of comparison. Or, or your friend has really taken up exercise and she has gotten 
really in good shape. She's lost a lot of weight, and now she's dressing a lot fancier, and, and she really looks sharp, and she's really gotten quite thin. And now look at, you're looking at yourself, and you just think, wow, I'm really frumpier than I thought. My clothes look so old. Or, or you're working with a colleague, and the colleague is given public recognition for work done. And he's receiving accolades, and you're in the room, and your name is never mentioned at all. But, but he's given a bunch of accolades, and you feel like, you, know, you begin to say those things, well, this doesn't seem fair. I work as hard as he does. Why am I not getting what they're getting? You, you see the envy by comparison come up. You see it in your kids all the time. If you have a child and he's playing with a special train in the room, and he, and he just loves that train, he's enjoying it, and then the next child walks in, he sees that train being played with and enjoyed. What does he want? He doesn't want a train. He wants that train. He'll walk over ten trains to get that train. Oh, you could have a, a child that hasn't played with the toy at the bottom of the toy box for a month. The neighborhood kid comes over, grabs the toy, pulls it out, and enjoys it, and all of a sudden now, the kid's gone rogue. He's got to have that toy. That's just the way we are. We want more. We want better. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. It's, it's envy by comparison. With whom do you compare yourself and over what? I would warn you that I think Facebook has been adding fuel to an already existing fire in your soul. Now, I'm not here condemning Facebook. I'm not meaning to do that. But there was a survey done. You know, well, Facebook, when you see whether it be vacations or the way they live, the way they eat, the friends that they have, it, it can breed this sense of what's wrong with me, right? So there's a survey done by two German universities. And here's what their findings were. That one in three Facebook users reported increasing feelings of dissatisfaction, loneliness, frustration, and anger after using the media site. The media trigger of envy was vacation photos, followed by social interactions such as comparing one's quantity of birthday wishes or status likes to those of others. The study found that Facebook envy affects different demographics in different ways. Women, for example, were more likely to envy the physical attractiveness of others. People in their mid-30s were more likely to envy family happiness. Regardless of one's age, gender, life stage, the study found a general relationship between using Facebook and overall dissatisfaction with one's life. I, I mean, this is the presence of envy. All I'm trying to do right now is trying to identify is envy present with us and in us, and this is one means of discerning it, this comparative analysis that is just intended to crush you. But there's other ways to identify envy in your soul. Uh, criticisms, complaining. When you begin to notice in your language a criticism of others whom you envy, you, know, you begin to take shots perhaps at their character or their motives or their intentions. They may not have life perfect, but they, you envy them in one aspect of, of their lives, and so you will torpedo the other aspects. Maybe they're not the greatest parent, or maybe they don't have the best marriage, or maybe their theology is a little weak. And so you begin to 
try to bring them down a rung on the ladder. These sins of complaint and criticisms. You know, one author said that there is hardly any sin outside of that, of the cause of envy, where we have to criticize and complain about other people. Dorothy Sayers, I referenced her earlier, is a British journalist and novelist, an incredible mind. She said that envy is the great leveler. If it can't level things up, it will level them down. At its best, envy is a climber and a snob. At its worst, it's a destroyer. Rather than have anybody happier than itself, it will see us all miserable together. It, it, it just, it's the complaining. D- do you find that within your own life? I mean, do, do you tend to have to introduce maybe something about the person that is succeeding? The person that seems happy? Do you want to introduce something to maybe level the playing field a little bit? That would be the evidence of this envious spirit. And let me give you another example, another area of manifestation of this sin would be ingratitude. Ingratitude where you fail to see all that God has done, all of his blessings. That there's this kind of, uh, one author said that envy kind of makes you blind to all that God has done. That kind of complaining spirit, like why not me? Why can't I have that? And, and, And you become blind to what God has done, but you become super focused on the one or two things that you don't have, that you want, but someone else has. And it leads to this ingratitude, kind of a, a sourness towards God. There's kind of a bitterness. And you see this in Psalm 73. The psalmist says these words. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So that's the statement, God is good. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity. There's this forgetfulness. There's this ingratitude towards God, unhappiness with God. So, so, so these are the, some of the manifestations here. You see the comparison, you see the complaining, and you see this sense of ingratitude. You forget all that God has done for you. In fact, let me remind you, in Matthew 20, there's a, a very neat parable told by Jesus. And it's really talking about God inviting people to enjoy his salvation. And so the parable goes that this landowner uh, hired workers from the city to work in the field. This is the free offer of salvation. Come, work in the vineyard, and I'll give you a denarius. Now, to a society that most of society was, you know, day laborers, this meant if I worked, I could eat. So this is a good thing. So they go out at 9 in the morning, and the workers go in the field, and they start working. They go out, and they get more workers at 12. The landowner has more workers at 12. And then even at 3 in the afternoon, the landowner sends people out to ask for more workers. And then even at 6 o'clock at night. So you have this field filled with people at all different stages of the day. And so here's the end of the story. They all get paid the same, of course, at the end. It says, these last worked only one hour. So the complaint, you know, the people that were there at 9 and 12 began to complain. Why are they getting paid the same that I have when I've labored all day in the sun. So he says, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us and have borne the burden of the day of scorching heat. So they're complaining to this landowner. Landowner said to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? 
it's startling how we can expect God that he needs to furnish to us all that we think he ought. So there's a sense of ingratitude there. You know, th- this is a very, very dangerous sin. Now, where do you see it in your life? I mean, if you're young, if you're a student, let's say, and you're, you're a student and you're, you're male, maybe some guy in your class has gotten much taller, much faster. His, his athleticism has just increased, and you're smaller in stature, and you're not as popular. And, and, and you, just, you just hate the guy because he is like that. You have not yet grown. Or if you're a student and you're a girl, and there's, there's one girl in the class that is just beautiful, perfect hair, never wears the same outfit twice, and, and just has the latest of everything. You know, there's that envy that can be inside of us. Or if you're, if you're a single and, and you see all your other friends getting married and you're not getting married, there's a sense of envy being left behind, a soreness. Or perhaps you can be a young mother and, and you have a friend who has children and they're just very compliant, well-behaved. Yours are swinging from the chandelier. And, and you, you can grow dissatisfied and almost angry. Or you're, you're married and you're a man and you see the wife of your friend, and she's always dressed so nice, and she seems so happy, and she's so pleasant to be with. Yet your wife is just struggling in life, burdened with a lot of responsibilities. Or you're a woman in marriage, and you see a friend who has a husband, and he's just a hard worker, and he does everything he's supposed to do, and he's always fixing up the house, and you can't get your husband to change a light bulb. Or, or you're in ministry, and, and, and the other ministries around you are exploding with growth, and yours is imploding. Their pastors recognized by people on the street, and you're not even recognized by people in your church. Or academia, if you're in academia, and the other prof always gets all the reviews, and they're always good reviews, and his paper was accepted by the academy. And you're just overlooked. I mean, all these are ways that we can just see kind of envy creeping within us. How do you respond when people are successful? I mean, do you, are you grateful? Do you celebrate? Or do you murmur and complain and think, why not me? Uh, th- this is a serious issue. This is a deadly sin. Uh, when you see this manifest, it, the danger to us, if we don't deal with this, the danger is that it will destroy our joy. Envy will destroy our joy. Think about, it. Think about this for a minute. It's ironic that envy is the only sin that is not fun. All the other sins are kind of fun. I mean, gluttony can be fun if the food's good. Lust can be fun, at least for a season. I mean, blowing your top in anger, that's kind of fun. Slothfulness, lying on the couch all day long, that could be enjoyable for a little bit. This is the only sin that is not fun. Why? Because it eats you out like cancer. I mean, it it leaves you inferior. You're constantly feeling less than. You're disappointed. You're discontent. Things are never going your way. Envy always leaves you in the minus. You pine away for things, and you never get it. It's been described not just as an ulcer on the soul, but Chrysostom, John Chrysostom was a great preacher in the 4th century. And he said, as a, moth gnaws, as a moth gnaws a garment, so doth envy consume a man. Even Bertrand Russell, no friend of Christianity, says that uh, envy is the most potent cause of our unhappiness. It's kind of like, you know, as your kid and you, 
You learned about that trick that if you put two pennies in a can and you dump a Coke in the can, what happens to the pennies? I mean, the acid of the Coke just consumes the penny. It's what it does for us. It just consumes us. It will destroy your joy. You will not be satisfied in life. You will forever be hungry for something that you don't have. But not just envy does it destroy us. It divides our relationships. You know, it's been said that envy separates a man from his neighbor. Envy can't coexist with a love for the neighbor. You know, we're called to love our neighbor, but, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not envy. You can't do both. It divides because you're always stacking yourself up. You're always holding yourself against somebody else, you know, intellectually or, or emotionally or physically or financially. How do I stack up with them? And, and you cannot love the one that you envy. It, it just works to divide. It works to separate. All the friends, the relationships you have. Think about it in the nature of the church. I mean, if you envy people in here, it's very hard to be transparent. It's very hard to be vulnerable. It's very hard to be sacrificial to somebody that you're always trying to measure up to. But it doesn't just destroy your joy. It doesn't just divide your friends. It will ultimately lead you to deny God. See, at the heart of envy is unbelief. At the heart of envy is unbelief. Because when you envy a person for something that they have or a trait or a characteristic, you're implicitly saying, God, you haven't given me what I think I need. You have failed to provide for me. Now, I don't think it's a denial of God like a turn-the-back atheism, but, but I think it's a slow deterioration of your faith in God. Because you're constantly saying, you look at somebody else, they have all these good things, and you're like, God must love them more. God, why haven't you given me a better husband? Why haven't you given me a better relationship? Why haven't you given me? And we begin to deny his goodness. It's the first sin in the garden. And we move from adoring God to accusing God of failing to be a good God. And it referenced that Psalm 73. My foot had almost slipped, the psalmist said. He almost gave way on believing because he saw, he saw the, the health and the prosperity of the wicked and his foot almost slipped. So th- these are serious things here. It, it will remove your joy. It will create wedges in your relationships. And, and ultimately, it will lead you to just slowly begin to wonder, is God good to me? So this is a serious... I hope you take this sin with its seriousness. A lot of times I think, yeah, it's, we identify it, but it doesn't grip us like it ought. In fact, one day when um, Carol, I had come to faith in Christ recently before, and we started attending a Bible study in a friend's home. And it was a new friend we had met after coming to faith. And so we were there a couple times. It was probably on the second or third time. Uh, people were beginning to leave, and they asked us to stay, and could we help them find their pet? And um, I'm thinking, well, they lost their dog or something. And so um, I said, sure, you know, we'll help you find your dog. And he says, well, not the dog. It's in the house. And I said, well, what pet do you have lost in the house? And he goes, well, we have a pet snake. And I'm thinking, well, pet and snake don't work for me. It's kind of an oxymoron. But, but um, so I said, I'm thinking he's pulling my leg. I said, really? And he said, yeah, I'm serious. And so the next question seemed obvious to me, like, what kind of snake is it? And he said, uh, it's a boa constrictor. 
you know, the kind. And I thought, what are you doing? What are you doing with a boa constrictor in your house? And he goes, well, it's a pet. The kids love it and everything. And it's a real, he said, it's, it's a real sweet. I said, boa constrictors are not sweet. By nature, they're not sweet. And, and so anyways, I, I start, I said, like, how long has this boa constrictor been lost? And he said, a week. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, just to hit the end of the story, we found it. It was in the couch that Carol and I had been sitting on all night. <laughs> But what I said to him was, I think I, I may have gotten a little bit of, I said, what in the world are you thinking to have a boa constrictor loose in your house for a week? They had small children. And I said, what are you thinking? I, I mean, to me, it was like parenting fail right here. <laughs> a live boa constrictor in the house. And, and I started thinking, when I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking, you know, if you know that envy will destroy your joy will divide your friendship, and will slowly lead you away from believing in the goodness of God, and you don't go after that, then are we not just like this family that thought a week was, you know, yeah, plenty of time. We'll figure out where this thing is at. I, I, I want us to feel a sense of, of intense desire. I've got to find where envy resides, and I have to kill it. I want to kill the envy. You've seen the nature of it. The nature of it is exposing our soul as to the loves and the idolatries that we have. I've explained where it manifests itself in complaining and ingratitude and in comparison. And now I want to move to the third point. How do you kill this thing? How do you kill it? The first thing, let me draw your mind back to the psalm in 37 verse 2. You see him say, be not envious. And then he immediately goes into the temporal nature of these evildoers that they were envious over. And, and he says that they're, they're not long-lasting. They're like the grass and the herb. You know, grass and herbs, they pop up early in spring, and they're quickly gone by the late summer. They don't last long. So when you think about the prizes that you're pursuing, you know, the, the better life, the better job, the better hair, the better husband, the better financial position, when you pursue those things, just remember that they're temporal that they are absolutely temporal. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. Just for a minute, consider with me, what was a necessity in your life 10 years ago? Do you even remember it? You had something that you had to have to be happy and satisfied. Do you remember what it is? And if you're over 40, all the necessities of your life, you've taken half of them to the dump. I mean, I mean, it was like, it was like our kids one time, we got one helium balloon. Three kids don't ask why, but... We got one, they were all fighting over it. And I remember thinking, this thing will have the helium dissipate in a day. It's going to be on the ground the next day, and they'll walk by it, and they won't even care about it. And yet they're fighting over it right now. They want it so bad, and yet it's not even going to be here tomorrow. Well, remember that. When you want to kill envy, whatever prize you're pursuing, whatever you think you need to be happy, whether it's popularity, beauty, money, whatever, fame, position, you're one call away from your whole life going left. You get one call tomorrow. And that which is so important today will just evaporate. So, so let's be wise in terms of when you identify, what are you envious over? And then think, that is going to be gone, and I'm not going to pursue it because it won't last. And secondly, 
that you would trust in God. You would take whatever that prize and you look to God. Look at verses 3 through 7. You see that repeat those commands. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. And then David is trying to encourage us here by telling us, if you delight in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, look at what he says. You will have the land, or an expression, for you'll enter his rest. He says that your righteousness will be like the noonday, that you'll have the desires of your heart. In other words, these desires, which envy plays with, will be satisfied with God. Kind of summing up in verse 11, where it says that the meek shall inherit the earth. God will meet every need and every desire you have in far greater fashion than you can even imagine. You have to trust in him for that. You have to commit your way to him for that. You have to delight in him now because he's going to bring that to you. That's the call for the Christian. And notice in there that he talks about the patience that's needed. It may not come tomorrow. But but that's the journey for the Christian. That whatever we're envying at the time... It's going to say, no, God, have you not given me favor? Has he not loved you? Does he not love you as much as them all? Does he not favor you with his name and his son? And so you have to commit your way to him. And and whatever that is, even if it's a better life, God, I'm committing your way, my way to you, and I'm going to be patient for you. That's the way we fight envy. Thirdly, let me give you one that maybe is not so clearly in the text, but it's, it's considering the riches of the gospel. And this is more clear in the book we just studied in 1 Peter in chapter 2, where he says, rid yourself or put away all hypocrisy and slander. And he says, envy and malice. Put it away. That's the Bible's way of saying repent of it. Identify it in your life where the envy is. Confess it to God. This is who I am, God. I would even encourage you to confess it to someone that's close to you. I mean, when you bring the light to the ugliness of envy, it helps expose it and eliminate it. To confess that you're seeking joy and satisfaction outside of God, confess it. But then what Peter goes on to say is, he says this, he says, as newborns long for the pure spiritual milk, long for the gospel is what he's saying. Long for the riches that are yours in Christ. Is Christ not enough? In the second letter of Peter, he says that everything pertaining to life and godliness has been given to you through the knowledge of him who called you out of darkness by his own glory and goodness. It's all been given to you. Everything we need for life and godliness. Do you believe that? If we believe everything has been given to us in Christ, then we don't need to envy other things. So think about the gospel. Repent of your envy and then move your mind to long for the pure spiritual milk of the gospel. And then I would say thirdly, to love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And you see that, I think, in verse 3 where it says, do good. You know, envy is the opposite of loving your neighbor. That's why, as I referenced in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, you know, love does not envy or boast. Love that you, you can't love your neighbor if you envy your neighbor. They, they don't go together. And what I mean by loving your neighbor is I mean first by recognizing that they may have gifts over which you're envious, but they're gifts of God. Give God praise for that. Don't be an anti-worshipper by failing to thank God for the gifts, right? Because if anybody has any gift, what ought we to think? What do they have that they haven't received? And why would they boast as though they didn't receive it? Or every good and perfect gift from the comes from the Father above, the Father of lights. So even the gifts that you envy, 
They're from God. So thank God for the gifts. And I would add that if a person that you envy, go up to them and thank them. Or just make note. You've been graced by God with a great intelligence. Thank you for using it for the kingdom. Pray for them. That's why we pray for other churches. Some it's a great church. It's a very growing church. We want them to grow. We want other churches to grow. We want the gifts that God has given to his people throughout his kingdom. We want them all to flourish. We want everybody to succeed for the kingdom of God. You want that as well. And, and be, be mindful that the gift that you may envy in another may be given to them for your benefit. You know, so I, I've often told you before that I've been profited. I don't envy. My wife, Carol, has this gift of emotional intelligence. She is just wise, at discerning people, and, and she has been of great help. Uh, oftentimes, of, of giving me insights into life that I necessarily wouldn't have been able to pull out. I could envy the gift, or I could be thankful for it. I could thank God and thank her. And so I would encourage you to do that. Be thankful of those around you. Because remember, envy doesn't strike the people outside your circle. You, most of us don't envy the movie star or the professional athlete. We usually envy those closest to us. And so it feels like a greater threat to thank them, as if it's somehow coming out of our account. But then I would also, fourth, be just thankful for your, the gifts that he's given to you. Cultivate in yourself a gratitude. Stop and think, God, what have you given me? What are my gifts? Now, sometimes this is hard to imagine because it's hard for us sometimes to speak to what we have been gifted with by God. So someone close, ask them, what grace do you see in me? How have you seen God? This isn't fishing for compliments. This is recognizing that sometimes it's hard to see and view ourselves. And so you're inviting a brother or sister into your life. Help me see how you see God's grace operating in my life. And then rejoice over that and thank him for it. That's the way to kill envy is by gratitude with God. So there's much here. Envy, it's... it's green, it's big, it's mean, and it's ugly, and it seeks to have you. So, so the nature of it reveals the darkness of our heart. The manifestations of it are clear. We have to kill it. So let's just take a minute right now, perhaps, and maybe you want to confess or just seek God for grace, and then um, I will close us in prayer, and then we'll, we'll move to the table.